This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's good to be back. I'm glad to be speaking to you again. I took most of the summer off um, because of uh, some personal reasons as well as just trying to think through what the real focus of this uh, show should be moving forward. Um, and it was a good time for me to just sort of rest and reset and reflect on on what that might mean and what might be valuable to people that are leaving evangelicalism or have left evangelicalism and the broader public at large. Um, and I really, I wrote about this earlier in a pod, I'm sorry, not a podcast, but a blog post that I published earlier in September, uh, just sort of detailing why I, why I took that time off and what the new focus of the show will be. Um, this show will always have stories of people who have left evangelicalism that seeks to validate and express their their grief and their trauma and all of those parts of their experience and find validation and acceptance for their lived experience. But one of the things that I think I may have been remiss on in the past has been really to focus also on the sorts of triumphs that we can have after leaving evangelicalism. And that's something that I hope to be able to focus on in the future. Further, we do have an election coming up next year, and white evangelicalism is at its zenith right now. Um, So it's very, very important to the broader public to understand why this population, why white evangelicals, and especially those in political power and cultural power, are so influential right now, and to understand the history of that particular movement and what that all entails. So my hope in the coming year is to really be able to focus on those two things, to be able to talk more clearly about the joys of finding purpose after evangelicalism, as well as detailing through conversations with people that do study evangelicalism or cover evangelicalism and being able to contextualize that in a format that's that's easy to understand and access. And part of that includes the interview that you're going to hear right now with professors Bradley Onishi and Daniel Miller. They are the co-hosts of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. And on their show, they really do a wonderful job of breaking down a lot of different elements of white evangelicalism through their episodes and through their interviews with other religious scholars. Uh, I highly recommend that you check it out. They are also both former evangelical pastors, so they bring both their lived experience as well as their professional, um, all their professional rigor to the subject matter at hand, which is often white evangelicalism, which is the focus of their most current season, which you can find on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Finally, there is one other change to the show that I want to mention here up top, and this is something that I started thinking about at the end of 2018 and was hoping to roll out earlier, 
but alas, here we are. Um, I want to build a form of economic reparations directly into the advertising business model of this show. So I'm going to be getting, I'm going to begin selling advertising space for the show. But 55% of all funds earned from host red ads on the show will be going through 2020 to nonprofits that support African American, Indigenous, and LGBTQ populations. If this is economically feasible, I hope to extend that into the future. Um, my first announced launch partner is Brave Commons. They are an organization that seeks to elevate the voices of LGBTQ students working within and beyond Christian universities in the United States. Listeners may be familiar with this show, or I'm sorry, with this organization because I spoke to one of the co-executive directors, Erin Green, on a prior episode of the show discussing her work at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, they are a great organization, and I'm really, really happy to have them on board as a launch partner for this effort. But the hope is is that through selling advertising, that is something that I can do to make this into a more financially feasible venture, as well as really put my money where my mouth is and say, this this is important and it's something that I'm going to do from the very beginning. This is not an afterthought. This is something that... I will be doing in in an effort to prioritize the things that I say I value, which include things like like reparations or giving money to organizations that do laudable work with populations that are impacted by white evangelicalism's discrimination. So that is that particular information. So you may hear advertising later on in future episodes that's not something that has happened before um but i do hope to make this this work a bit more sustainable and um i i'm just recording this from from my home i do have a day job and everything else uh so that is part of the plan um you can send me questions or whatever at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com and you can follow me on Twitter and all those other fun places uh, at BR Chastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, And you can join the Facebook group by searching for Exvangelical and answering the screener questions. All right, now let's get to this interview with Professors Bradley Onishi and Daniel Miller of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guests this week are the two co-hosts of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, Brad Onishi, who is Associate Professor of Religion at Skidmore College, and Dan Miller, Associate Professor of Religion at Landmark College. Welcome to the show, Brad and Dan. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank, uh, thank you both for coming on. I'm, I've, I've really enjoyed listening, listening to your show and the way you sort of tackle uh, white evangelicalism uh, within the context of, of your show. Um, but I want to start where, where we usually do, which is to learn a little bit about the guests and, and sort of where your story starts. Um, you both are religion professors, so you sort of understand the value and, and importance of someone's early religious development. So Brad, why don't you go first and, and talk a little bit about like your first your first religious experiences and what's your introduction to, to evangelicalism or white evangelicalism? excuse me, white evangelicalism was. Yeah, so my story's uh, a little different than others. I didn't grow up in a religious household. And uh, by the time I was 13 and 14, I was kind of 
getting in trouble, kind of a punk kid. And I had a girlfriend who invited me to a youth group uh, mm. on a Wednesday night. And this was a classic way to get out of the house on a weekday, uh, <laughs> see my girlfriend on a weeknight, which in junior high is like impossible. There's no way mom can say no to somebody going to church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, classic youth group story. She dumps me a week later. But um, <laughs> by that time, I am hooked on Jesus. And, um, you know, within months, I go from this sort of juvenile delinquent to hardcore Jesus freak. Uh, mm-hmm. I go from, you know, having mom drop me off at the movie theater and then sneaking around the back to do teenage stuff to standing out in front of the movie theater, um, asking people if they've heard of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Dan, how about you? Yeah, so um, my family sort of church hopped some when I was younger, when I was a younger kid, tried out different churches and different things like that. Um, but when I was 16, I think, um, maybe 15, oh, 16, <laughs> uh, I, I, we were part of this church and this really, really small youth group, and they did uh, like a two-week mission trip to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I went to that, and I had this kind of— uh, you could call it a conversion experience, except that I was probably already converted. But this sort of uh, the evangelical term might be rededication, like sort of mm-hmm. rededicating yourself to your faith and so forth. And and that was sort of transformative for me. And I came back sort of fired up and gung ho. And, and I was sort of the driving force behind a lot of the stuff in my family with religion. Then, like my parents, I think, got a lot more serious about going to church. Mm-hmm. The two younger brothers who got really involved. And so um I sort of traced the beginning of it really to that that summer um, that I was I was sixteen. Um, gotcha. The, that's where I put the beginning for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So so you had sort of one of the terms that I heard on mission trips and things like that was mountaintop experiences. Was that, so that was sort of that mountaintop yep. that you had that that got you enthusiastic and on fire for God. As they say, yep, <laughs> yep. yep. It was yeah. it was it was actually on that trip in that moment that uh. I, I sort of came to the conclusion that I had been called to ministry, as, mm. as the evangelicals will say. So mm-hmm. I came back with a vision of, you know, becoming a pastor, becoming a minister um, at the, the ripe old age of 16. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big. Right. When you need to make big life life decisions at 16. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dan, I just have to say, as an aside, I I really appreciate that you see you say evangelical. Not I feel like I'm in the minority in saying evangelical, and most people say evangelical. But oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you for Team Evangelical, and I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> just getting back to this, I mean, I um, I, I think it's really you, both your stories sort of reflect how much um, like y- sort of youth culture had an influence in youth group culture on on your introduction into evangelicalism. I mean, that sort of mirrors my life, too. I was already a, a relatively religious-oriented kid. I had a, just a lot of religiosity uh, sort of swirling around in me. Um, but I was sort of primed when, I, when my family moved um, from Indiana to the Chicago suburbs, and I didn't know any friends and then didn't have any friends because I moved at the end of a school year. And then that next school year, I started a youth group and bang, you know, there it is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So uh, within your within your youth group experiences and things like that, were you also involved in like or exposed to the sort of purity culture things that that a lot of folks run in run into, Um, especially usually like the 40 and younger 
cohort, but it's been there for longer than that too. But I feel like the 90s and early 2000s were the zenith of that focus. Did that intersect with your stories? It, it does for me. I, uh, you know, by the time I converted when I was 14 and by the time I was 15, I was wearing a purity ring. Um, I had sort of been indoctrinated into all of the, you know, standard evangelical ideas about lust and sexual temptation and waiting until marriage and masturbation and all that stuff. And, uh, Josh Harris's book, you know, was this sort of big thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kissed dating goodbye. Uh, that was a big thing in our youth group. And so that played a huge role. I mean, and that was really a way, honestly, to, to signal to my old friends, my non-Christian, non-evangelical friends, just how drastically I had changed. You know, when I got to uh, school in ninth grade and I told them I was a Christian, they said, well, that's fine. Great. Whatever. And then when I, I told them, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to you know, do all these things that we used to do. And I'm not even going to kiss a girl until I'm married. Right. And that's when they mm-hmm. really sort of started to, to look at me like something, something really changed here. And that was, I think that was a very clear outward signal to my peers that like my life had been, you know, transformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of similar. I think I'm, I'm just a little bit older than Brad. Um, cause I remember when I kissed dating goodbye came out, I was, I was somewhere in college. Um, but yeah, I, I I would have to look at the timeline. But you remember the the True Love Waits, the little purity cards that everybody had, yeah. and, yeah. and oh, yeah. there was that big event in D.C. where they like put them all on the mall. I'm pretty sure that one of those was my card. I'm pretty sure that we like mm. sent our cards off, and like somebody did that. Like we didn't go to D.C., but yeah. So I mean, I, I grew up in Colorado. That's where I had this conversion experience and and all of that. But then in the middle of my junior year in high school, we moved to Arkansas. So I moved to a, a really different kind of evangelical religious culture. Mm-hmm. And it was down there that yeah, it was just it was just sort of part of your faith that you're going to wait until you're married to have sex. And I was you know, I never even sort of questioned that. Um, I, I, again, in terms of like parents and stuff, you've got all kinds of teenagers whose parents are like worried about them having sex. And I was the sort of driving force of saying, no, I'm going to wait till I'm married to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, so that was very much part of, of, you know, sort of that experience and, and how that how that played out for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for both of you, were you in non-denominational churches at the time or were these did did you have was there a denominational affiliation? This is, I'll be honest, this is a leading question. And what, I, what, I'm, what I'm curious about is, I think, I went to United Methodist Church um, where this youth group was that was very formative for me, but everything really mirrored, uh, mirrored evangelical teachings, and I think it's because evangelical publishing houses were the ones that were providing, providing content for those youth volunteers and youth pastors. So I'm curious if um, you had some, both of you had similar experiences, even if you grew up in or were exposed to different denominational practices. Yeah, I, I think the answer is um, a clear yes. So I, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I grew up in North Orange County, which is, you know, it's on the border of L.A. County. But um, my church was a 2000 person uh, Quaker church, uh, which sounds like a paradox. Um, and when you think of Quaker <laughs> You kind of think of um, small gatherings. You think of kind of things that a lot of progressive people can get on board with. You think of social justice. You think of egalitarian structures. You think of a history of abolitionism. All of those things had been filtered out. And what had been sort of reworked was a very generic evangelical culture. 
So it was really hard to tell the difference between our Quaker church and something like, you know, the Baptist church down the street or the mm. Methodist church down the street or even the, um, the EV Free or the Vineyard. I mean, I had friends at school that went to all those churches and there were some minor differences, but for the most part, um, we really had a common language. And uh, as you said, Blake, a lot of that came from publishing houses, from tracks, from videos, um, from concerts. You know, the Christian concert circuit really helped out with that kind of thing. Right. So yeah. That whole sort of, you know, generic uh, evangelicalism that kind of uh, rode roughshod over denominational uh, boundaries really hit home in, in my experience. Mm. Yeah, mine, mine's different. So when I was in Colorado, I was a, a member of a church uh, affiliated with a denomination called the Conservative Baptists, um, which is a denomination of conservative Baptists. <laughs> like, <laughs> theologically, it's like the most, you know, I guess, perfectly descriptive name ever. Uh, and then when I moved to Arkansas, I actually joined a Southern Baptist church. And so it was, my, it was a really different experience. It wasn't a mega church. It wasn't, uh, you know, huge. I lived in this little town, and it was a church of a few hundred members, um, which in the little town I was in made it the biggest church, and it was huge compared to the church I had come from. Um, I went from having a youth group with like, you know, eight or ten kids to a youth group with like 50 or 60 kids, and so that was a big deal for me, but it, it wasn't the same kind of experience. Um, but it's interesting because it was it was a Southern Baptist church, uh, the largest evangelical denomination in the U.S., uh, was then, still is. Mm -hmm. Um but the, Brad highlights something when he talks about this kind of common vocabulary. It was the same thing. We would go to like some big youth conference in like Tulsa or Little Rock or wherever, and we would have churches of all different kinds, all different backgrounds, non-denominational, denominational. But there was this this kind of common vocabulary and common language that all the kids would use, right? Everybody could talk the same ways, and they would talk about their walk, or they would talk about their quiet times, or they would talk about their purity pledges, or, you know, they would have their purity rings, and everybody knew what that meant. And so um, I think it really did highlight the way that, that even within that denominational context, there, there, were, there were some sort of Southern Baptist distinctives, but there was that overlay of a kind of broader evangelical subcultural kind of uh, ethos about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Interesting. So moving on in your story a little bit, but for both of you, um, do you, what sort of colleges do you decide to go to? Do you end up, end up in Christian colleges? Um, or where does your story sort of go next? And when did, when do things like we're at this point in your stories where you're still sort of in that on fire phase, when do <laughs> when do you start to, uh, when did when did the questions start to creep in and and you're not quite as sold on on the whole endeavor? When does that begin? So uh, a bunch of formative things happened for me uh, in the later years of high school. So I, I start dating uh, my future wife when I'm uh, a freshman in high school. Um, I as soon as I graduate, I go to a zoo specific university, which is half an hour from my house. Azusa Pacific is uh, near Pasadena, mm -hmm. uh, and, California, and um, it's it's a sort of pretty hardcore evangelical place. We had chapel three times a week; that was mandatory. Mm -hmm. uh, we had required Bible classes, required theology classes. Um, but the significant thing that happened uh, at the same time was, as soon as I graduated, I was I, I was a youth minister on staff at the church. So it was a big church, two thousand people. I was one of the, the junior high ministers. And so um, now I'm in ministry, I'm at a Christian college, and I'm engaged to, to get married. And so by the time 
this, uh, my second year of college finishes, I become the head youth minister. Uh, I get married and I continue to uh, go to college. So by the time I always tell my students now, um, I know that you're having a hard time uh, managing your assignments. But when I was your age, um, I was married and I was in charge of a uh, (laughs) uh, 200-person youth group and uh, I was going to school full time. And so um, those first years of college were really the crescendo of my on-fire phase. The problem was I majored in philosophy and and, um, took theology classes and, and we all know we all know that um, evangelicals are very wary of thinking too much uh, in a philosophical way because it's a slippery, it slope. You. It's a slippery, it's a slippery slope. slope, right? <laughs> and and they were right because um, I I really started to uh, have intellectual uh, crises uh, starting in my junior and senior years, and by the time I finished, um, I was kind of at a, a crossroads. It's, it's interesting. There's some points of similarity and, and probably difference there. I was the same way. I went to a, a Southern Baptist college um, and I majored in, uh, it, call it religion, but it was, it was like, you know, this kind of pre-seminary track um, sort of thing. Uh, and it, very much like Brad, my, my sort of on fire phase, if you like, persisted. But I also... Um, will say about my college, I still, uh, it was, I was very intellectual there. I think there were a lot of students who were training for, you know, they they had a vision of like youth pastoring and stuff like that. And, you know, and they kind of suffered their way through some of the more academic courses in like, you know, um, the religion topics. I was, you know, bigger into that. So I was a a biblical languages major. I studied Greek Mm -hmm. and Hebrew and, um, learned to read the Bible in Greek and studied exegesis and things like that. And, and so for me, that was, that was one of those kind of critical components, um, critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that my faculty always encouraged me to think critically. And I never once had an experience of a faculty member trying to sort of rein me in or something. And, and so for me, it wasn't philosophy and theology, but it was, it was like biblical study that started to like put some cracks in there. So on one hand, by the time I left there, I was, I was still very much an evangelical, but within evangelical circles, I would have been something of a moderate in some ways. Like Mm -hmm. I, uh, I affirmed the ordination of women, which sounds like nothing. uh, (laughs) And certainly doesn't mean much to me now. Um, but at the time that was a really big thing. And certainly, yeah. And Southern Baptist circles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I I had some more moderate views on like the LGBTQ community. Of course we didn't have that language then. Right. Um, but I, I, I didn't think that people chose to be gay. I still believe because of purity culture and heteronormativity and stuff like that, that if somebody was gay, they were called by God to be celibate. But I didn't think that they were like wrong or sinful or bad for being gay, which again, doesn't sound like a moderate position if you're outside of that world, but within it, it was, it was pretty kind of edgy. And, you know, um, I was not a biblical literalist, um, because I'd studied the Bible too much in Greek right. and Hebrew and things like that. So I, it's very much in retrospect that I see those as sort of pieces that would sort of lead in a different direction later at the time. I didn't experience them as sort of calling into question my evangelicalism, but I can see the pieces now. Sure. In place. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mention like um uh biblical like biblical languages being being a sort of an a vector or like an entry vector for questioning biblical literalism because that for me was a big thing. Uh also I took, you know, 2 years of Greek in undergrad yeah. and 
biblical literalism like doesn't survive modern biblical criticism and just all, all well even even the biblical criticism all you have to do is translate any passage from like one language to another and you learn just how slippery language is and that there's just no way right that you can play this game of a one-to-one literal you know a literal translation and all, all that stuff there's just no way it just doesn't work right yeah yeah absolutely but both of those both of those are you know, I, I think sort of, I, I don't know, it, 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 within within our world of people that, that have left evangelicalism, it, it feels, sometimes feels cliche, right? You like educate your way outside, out, out of evangelicalism. Right. In a way. Um, so, so you sort of both have, have these experiences, um, but then uh, I've listened to some of your shows, so it, I, I know that there's other parts of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you both uh, are pastors at different points. Um, that I'm sure I, I'm sure adds another level of pressure as far as feeling an obligation to believe certain things and then a duty to teach them and live them. Um, so what was, what was that part of your experience like for, for each of you when you were, when you feel like you're, you're moving away from this, like, faith of origin to something different but you're also in charge of shepherding people and that sort of thing so how does how does that affect you yeah that that weighed on me tremendously uh you know as a 22 year old 23 year old uh when i graduated college my uh, denomination wanted me to go get a master divinity um i sort of compromised and I, I signed up for the program, but I knew that I would only do two years and get an MA and I would skip a lot of the pastoral and counseling stuff. <laughs> I, um, uh, I was always in it for the books. I know I was going to study theology and philosophy. So, um, but as I went through that process, um, I battled two things, right? I know intellectually that I'm starting to really not line up with all the people around me. Um, the books I'm reading um, on my days off are, um, you know, theology and philosophy that I know they would think is out of bounds, that is not allowed. I'm thinking about social justice. I'm thinking about how I should vote. And on the other hand, uh, my greatest joy in life was working with these teenagers. You know, like I'm helping teenagers are having a hard time at home. I'm helping parents find their runaway kids. I'm helping kids who have drug problems. And so I don't necessarily want to leave them, even though it does. It increasingly looks like I'm just not able to exist in this space um, myself. You know, I'll say I don't actually um, talk about this on our show very much, but um, I have a recurring dream still today. I mean, 15 years after leaving evangelicalism, I have this dream about once a month, and that dream is I'm up in front of 200 kids, I'm leading a prayer on a Sunday morning, and in my head while I'm leading the prayer, I'm wondering if they can tell that I don't believe in God anymore. Mm. Right. And for me, that recurring dream is just a sort of signifier of like uh, the paradoxical place that I was in for about a year. Um, I I actually ended up leaving. I went to the UK uh, to go to grad school. And when I got to the UK, I thought, oh, man, I'm I'm free. Like for the first time since I'm high school, I'm anonymous and I can actually search out the kind of Christian I want to be. You know, what I didn't realize is um, very quickly, I was never going back. Like I, I got there and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be Methodist, maybe I'll be Anglican, maybe I'll be Orthodox. Who mm-hmm. knows? It's a smorgasbord of denominations. I'm going to sample everything. And um, you know, if you fast forward six months later, uh, I 
I, I just can't get myself to go to church. Uh, it was it was a pretty quick, uh, pretty quick exit once once I actually left the geographical location. Hmm. Hmm. Again, uh, I guess there'll be some similarities and differences. And it's interesting. I mean, Brad and I really do have these weirdly parallel <laughs> kind of stories in a lot of ways. Um, I was thinking about this like in advance of this this conversation, and I was thinking back around the timeline. So I, I graduated. Um, I'm 22. I get ordained and I go out to this church in Seattle, Southern Baptist Church, but it's in Seattle, which is this, you know really progressive, largely secular city. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had I had interned at the church the summer before, and they'd offered me a position for when I came back out. And so I'm I'm one of two pastoral staff in this little church. I'm called the associate pastor, which means I'm, I'm basically I'm the junior of the two two mm-hmm. staff members. But the real, if I look back on it, you know, there are lots of, you know, some people have these really rapid breaks, some of these more gradual breaks. Mine was much more of a gradual shift, but a really, really, really defining event for me was the 2000 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this is what I was thinking about earlier today. In my mind, that election was like really early in my tenure there. I think I was there for five years. In, in reality, I think I was halfway through my time there. But one of the things I realized, and, and Brad talked about the weight, you know, the responsibility on him, is I didn't actually know much about politics at all um, because I had been in this evangelical context. And what I knew is Republicans are good and Democrats are bad and we oppose abortion and and gay people like they, they, their partners shouldn't have like insurance benefits. That was the big issue back then. That was all I knew. And I began to realize that I was like in this position where I thought I was supposed to be able to talk to parishioners about things. And like, you know, if they would come to me with questions, I ought to be able to speak to them. And I was I was sort of ashamed that like I didn't actually know anything about politics. And so I did something that all the rationalist political like scientist people would think everybody does, but almost nobody does. I found this online website that had this whole list of like different political questions and, you know, a scale of one to five, what do you think about this? And you could click on it. It would be what it, you know, explain what that meant. I worked through this whole thing. It would match you to a candidate. Right. And I come out like fully, like full on democratic. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, you know, it's like, you know, some people have like, I don't know, a sexual awakening or something. Mine was this weird political thing where <laughs> Like Brad's saying that, you know, social justice issues. I mean, I, I was still conservative by any measure and a lot of my views on marriage and abortion and things like that. But social justice and other things sort of were there. And I quietly voted for Al Gore in the 2000 election. And I'm in seminary at the time. And I remember uh, the first time I, I go to the seminary right after uh, the Supreme Court had sort of closed down the recounts in Florida. So the election goes to Bush and whatever. And I walk in the like student lounge, it was this little tiny seminary campus, and all these people are in this prayer circle, right? And they're like praying and thanking God that like his will was done and Bush won and all of this. And I'm just kind of like, they, you know, they invite me to join them. And I'm like, I begged off for some reason. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I felt like this kind of outcast. But for me, from that moment on, it, it illustrated both that there were some things working in me that I hadn't realized, but it also sort of set me on a trajectory. I was still there when the U.S. In, invaded Iraq. And I wasn't I wasn't in support of that. Being in Seattle, I got to know a lot more LGBTQ people and they weren't what I had always thought they were you know, supposed to be. And so I, I also left to study in the UK, uh, actually at the same college Brad went to. He came a little bit after I did. Um, 
And when I left, I knew that I was done with evangelicalism. Like I had, I had sort of boxed up all these thoughts and sort of stuck them in a shelf in the back of my mind. But when I left, I knew that I was done. And so again, maybe like Brad, a very sort of freeing feeling. Um, I, I have remained more attached to the church, uh, a, a version of church than, than Brad has, but a really similar experience in that to by the time I left through, you know, a whole series of, of events and changes in what I thought, um, when I left, I was done and I knew that I was done. I, I had felt this obligation to fulfill my ministry time there. And I had known for like a year and a half or so when I would be going to go to grad school. And I had, I had sort of just, I don't know, made this bargain with myself or something that, you know, I had been called to do this and I would fulfill that into the best of my ability and my conscience. I would, fulfill my ministerial obligations, but I was done. And, mm. and I was the day I left, I was, you know, I was finished with evangelicalism. Mm. So you, so you finished your, your duties and then, um, eventually both of you also work your way into academia. Uh, so, so what was it that, that made religion at least sticky enough for you to want it to be an aspect of your career, but just not as not a pastoral sort of vocation? but one of, of studying and a more academic approach to understanding religion. You know, I used to think that this was kind of a, a contradiction in my biography. I used to think that, you know, why am I, why is my life still consumed by religion when I've by all accounts left uh, evangelicalism and I'm, and I don't identify as a religious person any longer. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually when I think about it now, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, when I was, 12, 13, 14, I was getting in trouble. I was kind of, you know, giving my parents headaches. But I was also that kid who would go out at night and like stare at the stars and, and think about how life was meaningless. And this also explains why evangelicalism was so attractive to me. Um, at an early age, I kind of felt a nihilistic impulse inside of me. Like, what is the meaning of life? It seems like it's kind of, you know, temporary and then you die. I mean, what what's the point? And evangelicalism provided very neat <laughs> answers to that. Yeah. I mean, very, looking back, very sophomoric answers, very, um, in many ways, uh, intellectually dishonest answers, but answers nonetheless that I cling to until I was in my 20s. Well, when I emerged from evangelicalism, I remained somebody who was absolutely obsessed with asking fundamental questions. I just didn't want to do that in the kind of um, intellectually closed and... Um, kind of um, fundamentalist community that I'd been ensconced in throughout, you know, throughout my youth. So in that way, I think it makes sense. Like I remain fascinated by life's most primary questions. And I, and I love studying and interacting with the people who are asking and, and answering those questions. Um, even if I'm just not somebody who uh, identifies as a Christian or as a religious person at this point in his life. Mm -hmm. Dan, how about you? Yeah, it's again. There'll be some similarities there. It's it's kind of funny. I was thinking about the the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche has this uh, this place, and I'm not going to remember exactly which text he says this in, uh, but where he he kind of says that that Christianity, in his view, sowed the seeds of its own downfall because it emphasized truth so much, and he's sort of like <laughs> you know in his mocky Nietzschean way is like you know Jesus said you'll know the truth, and the Christians took it really seriously, and they went out and they sought the truth. And it undermined their faith. <laughs> and there's, I mean, there's a certain sense in which 
I went and I mean, I, but I went to study theology, right? So I was leaving evangelicalism. I wasn't leaving Christianity. I didn't think I wasn't leaving the church. So I went to study systematic theology. That opened up a whole other set of questions and very, very different conceptions, as Brad says, of like fundamental issues, right? Even whether theistically conceived or not. Um, but so part of it on, on just the academic side, I wound up sort of shifting from biblical studies to theology to eventually more of a philosophical approach. And then the person I was working with was in a religious studies program. I sort of, over time, I, I sort of evolved into that. Um, but along with that, for a while, you know, I, I was active with the church when I when I lived in, in Oxford. Um, and then I came out to the States. And for a while, I was kind of drifting out. It wasn't that important to me. Uh, started having kids and, you know, just didn't have much time. Um, ironically, bringing it up more to the present, part of what has sort of moved me back to a liberal, progressive kind of church has been the Trump election. Uh, mm. It turns out that when I hear all these evangelicals talking about, you know, the that the, the, we ought to be opposing, you know, asylum seekers and and refugees and this and that, the sort of another philosopher, Richard Rorty, would call it your kind of final vocabulary, like my, my bedrock, the place where I reach you know, in the moments of rage and, and that sort of thing is this passage where Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, right, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, it's this very, very much a prophetic kind of Jewish passage in one of the gospels you, you've done for me, that the locus of the divine, however you define that, is in the marginalized and dispossessed. And I just found myself sort of almost thrown back into that in opposition to a certain kind of Christian ethno-nationalism um, mm. feels like it's sort of gripping the country. So I, I feel like I've kind of become almost almost drawn back into a form of religiosity in part as a response to what has been going on with, you know, white evangelicalism in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I, that I, I think that's an understandable impulse. Um, we we left a we left our final sort of evangelical oriented church um, in 2014. It was one of those things where we stayed because of the community. Like I would had never considered myself evangelical for a long time, even before that. But we stayed right. because we loved the people, which is what a, yeah. a lot of people feel. Um, but then. And then we were unchurched for a couple of years until, <laughs> until the, until the election, and then we uh, tried out an Episcopal church after that. So, um, so yeah, that 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 does make sense, and it actually it, that provides a really good segue, I think, to talking about the the show um, that you that you both started last year. I believe it was last year, right in twenty eighteen. Yeah. Was yeah. when you launched the first season of uh, Straight White American Jesus. You're both co-hosts of that show, uh, and you what you do on what you do there is you really uh, tackle these things a lot of times from a, a, like a, a topical sort of approach. Uh, and you you've you've 
even for season two, you even dialed in even more on white evangelicalism and really uh, talking about that. Um, so you mentioned the Trump election. Um, I actually started the show, my show. Uh, it launched the same week as the Republican National Convention in 2016, which wow. which was intentional because of the evangelical connection to the GOP. Um, and sort of in hindsight was just almost prophetic or fortuitous or something. <laughs> but um, one of the things that, that I, I really like about your show is that you contextualize what it means for white evangelicalism in particular to be not just a, a type of religion, but, but also a culture. Um, so if either of you could, could sort of start that, I'd, I'd like to sort of enter that part of the conversation, just talking about, um, about what that means for American culture right now in particular, um, that, and understanding white evangelicalism not only as a religion but also a culture. I think one of the first pieces to talk about is this, maybe this qualifier of white, white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of ways that people define evangelicalism, uh, and I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of that because it's it's pretty boring unless you're really into it, like geeks we, like me. We can know. we can talk about Bevington if you want. I mean, <laughs> get, right. Well, get I mean, into yeah. It. So so no. there's, there's a. There's a <laughs> Says no. <laughs> a, a habit that, um, I mean, one of the things Brad and I talk a lot about is people tend to define religion a lot in terms of belief, right? And one of the ways of defining evangelicalism is in a set of beliefs. And if you go to like the website of the National Association of Evangelicals, they have Bebbington's list of like, here are some beliefs that if you're an evangelical, you believe these things. And if you just go by that, we know that, you know, majority African-American denominations and congregations, if they're polled, will state a lot of the same beliefs that white evangelicals do. And so and you'll often see evangelicals cite this to show that the, the movement is diverse and that it involves lots of different kinds of people. But if you were, you know, a traveler from somewhere and was like, oh, this here's this this diverse form of Christianity, I'm going to go explore it on a Sunday morning. And you walk into a church, it's going to be really predominantly white or really predominantly black or really predominantly Hispanic. It's not going to be, you know, this, this kind of mix of people. And so what we also find is that if you define evangelicalism and you put that, you know, you say, OK, well, let's let's control for the variable of racial or ethnic identity. All of a sudden, all kinds of patterns emerge, right? Mm -hmm. If you, somebody tells me I oppose abortion and I oppose same-sex marriage and I go to church four times a month, how do you think I voted in the election? I don't necessarily know. If they tell me I oppose same-sex marriage, I oppose abortion, I attend church four times a month, and I'm African-American, how do you think I voted? I'm almost certain they didn't vote for Donald Trump. And if they're white, they almost certainly did, mm -hmm. right? Uh, high levels of religiosity, conservative religious beliefs, that the race or ethnicity is that key idea. And because of the really highly segregated nature of most denominations and churches, that's part. So that, that all of that to say, that's one of the, the pieces we wanted to look at and I think has come through really clearly in the things that we've done 
it's come through in, in my work and my teaching and you just more and more and more scholarship has come out since 2016 in particular, mm-hmm. highlighting that that racial component is a really, really, really central feature of this form of, of American religion. Right. So I mean, that'd be the sort of first thing I would start with is just why that focus, because people want to know that. Right. Why? Why always white evangelicalism? What? Well, what's that qualifier doing there? And I think that it's a really, really important qualifier for understanding what's going on, because Trump didn't win 81 percent of the vote of everybody who opposes abortion. He won 81 percent of the vote of white evangelicals who oppose abortion. Those African-American Christians, by and large, didn't vote for him. And that's that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Brad, you want to jump in? Um, you know, I think. I think what's important to me when we try to get beyond belief uh, to culture is that beliefs are often a cover. So as Dan yeah. just as, as Dan just outlined, uh, you can poll people, and um, many folks across racial and ethnic lines are going to line up um, similarly on a survey. Uh, however, when you investigate their lived experience, their culture at their church and their communities, they're often drastically different. And so, I think for us on the show. Uh, we want to we want to dissect how beliefs. You know, if if I talk about family values or if I talk about a culture of life, what I'm telling you to to your face is that yeah, I'm opposed to abortion or I'm for protecting the nuclear family or something like that. Um, what I'm getting beyond that though is much much more. So beliefs are a cover for a whole package of things that are actually uh, often more important even if they're uh, often more uh, uh, or less salient um, than, than the beliefs, right? So evangelicals will talk your ear off about a culture of life. Um, they will talk your ear off, right, about um, family values. Um, what they won't sort of, sort of fess up to is what kinds of moral quietism, what kinds of um, fatalism, what kinds of racism, what kinds of exclusionary practices that those beliefs enable for them. And so for us on the show, I think that's really important is um, we need to get beyond, uh, you know, giving evangelicals the benefit of the doubt and dissecting their beliefs. And we need to see what those beliefs are doing for them to understand Mm -hmm. why someone like Donald Trump looks so close to Jesus in their eyes. Right. Sort sort of I was just going to sort of dovetail on that on that theme of of going beyond belief. This is also why, you know, I I, I was invited to somebody had heard the podcast and I was invited to do this just sort of a there's an informal get together of of progressive UCC United Church of Christ pastors near where I live in, in central mass and. And they're just really curious about this phenomenon of, of evangelicalism. And, and one of the things that Brad and I felt like we brought in the podcast is both this kind of insider view of having been in evangelicalism, but also the critical tools of the professional you know, academic study of religion and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they would say things to me like, OK, I, I get like they would say, I don't agree with it, but I get opposition to abortion. I see how that could be cast as a religious or moral issue. I don't agree with it, but I understand why, especially given the history of Christianity, they would oppose same-sex marriage. But what about gun rights? I don't get, like, they, they're, they're biblical literalists. Why in the world do they think, you know, this way about gun rights? And why do they think the things they think about refugees when there are all these commands in the Bible about about loving the marginalized and the poor and the orphan and the widow and so forth? And, and what part of what even motivated this season in thinking about these things for us was— that if you focus on that level of belief, 
those are completely incongruous and they don't make any sense. Right. But exactly as Brad is saying, if all of these things come together as a, a kind of, you know, a package deal, and if, as I've argued in places and we argue on the show, if political, politically conservative identity is a part of the religious identity of a majority of white evangelicals, then to be Christian is to be politically conservative, which means to be Christian is yes to oppose abortion, yes to oppose same-sex marriage, but also to affirm a certain interpretation of the Second Amendment, also to have a certain notion, excuse me, of what national security is or whatever other kind of buzzword you want on the political right. And it's, it's only when you can, as, as the language Brad's using, as you get beyond belief to see what do those beliefs bring with them, what do they do for the evangelicals socially, how do they help to maintain and construct evangelical identity, that's when you can start to make sense of these kind of phenomena in a way that a, a focus on theological doctrine doesn't. It just, it just sort of misses all of that. Mm-hmm. And one of, one of the lenses that, that, that you have used in the show is to talk about evangelicalism as a form of fundamentalism um, and being fundamentalist both in its sort of understanding of, of key biblical texts, but them, but them also having a very particular sociopolitical interpretation, right? So, I mean, you can have a liberal, uh, a liberal Christian look at the first two chapters of Genesis and have them be motivated by that, by that, that text to preserve the earth and respond to climate change in this moment in history. Right. You will have with within evangelicalism, you will have people pushing back and saying that no, Genesis one, I think twenty eight says that we're supposed to have dominion, and so we can do whatever the hell we want with this earth. Um, and you know, God won't let the carbon get imbalanced. Don't worry about that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, so that's just one particular example of of fundamentalism, and it being, as you both said, like a package deal. Um, what is it? Uh, how else can that, looking at it from that lens and that understanding of what it means for evan- white evangelicalism to be a fundamentalist culture and religion, uh, how can people that are outside of outside of it um, under use that to understand both the motivations and the reasoning behind evangelical political behavior? So my, I think there's a, a pretty quick response, right? Fundamentalisms, uh, fundamentalists of all, all stripes interpret themselves as the true believers or the true citizens. Mm-hmm. They, they construct a memory, not a history, uh, though they may call it that. They construct a memory of the past that places them at the center of the story as the true restorative uh, people in a religious tradition or in a country. Now, when it comes to white evangelicals, they get to be both. They're the true Americans and the true Christians. The impulse of the fundamentalist is first and foremost to reduce the world to a binary. Mm. Us and them, here and there, me and other. And my argument is that uh, evangelicalism uh, is a culture that protects those who want to reduce the world in those terms. So we can take that in terms of gender, right? We can talk about um, the evangelical resistance to um, 
recognizing trans people, evangelical resistance to having um, conversations and dialogue about gender and sexuality being on a spectrum. We can talk about immigrants. Uh, we can get to a place where evangelicals will say, you know, whether or not we're all God's people is one thing, but we are Americans and we are the chosen people in this country. And so those refugees who came here illegally, sorry, I have no pity for them. Uh, so fundamentalism uh, at its core uh, wants to divide the world into two categories, place good over one, evil over the other, and then go from there. One of the things that evangelicals love about Donald Trump is that this is his impulse, first and yeah. foremost, on every issue. And mm -hmm. so why not Ted Cruz? Why not Mike Huckabee? Well, because in a way that was similar to George Bush, they might have shown a little bit too much willingness to actually reflect on the complexity of certain issues. Um, I mean, that's saying a lot when it comes to George W. Bush. But when you compare, <laughs> him, to, um, when you compare him to Donald Trump, evangelicals find there right, a, a, a will to power and a will to reduction that is so seductive. It is just, it is exactly what they want. And so if you, if you go at it in that way, it makes perfect sense that he is their guy, he remains their guy, and until he turns on them on fundamental issues, he will, he will always be their guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, everything Brad said is, I think, exactly right. And just to sort of add to it or, or to, to sort of pick up on some points where, where he sort of touched on, I think you do have this this radical simplification of everything into an either or category, right? Exactly mm -hmm. as you're saying into to binaries. Um, but you also have, I, I think, is sort of mixed into that. But you can have different versions of that. But you also have, with this sense of, I mean, maybe that's even what you see in like biblical literalism, right? It's it's either all literally true, exactly as God intended it and said it, or it's all false. You can't trust any of it. There couldn't be anything in between, right? But when you take that kind of model of absolutes of good or evil and truth and falsity and you blend those together, you have a potent mix. And I, I don't think it's unique to religious fundamentalism. I think you get similar things in certain like fascist ideologies and so forth. But when you have, as Brad says, the sort of will to power, a legitimation of power that can be benevolent because it's grounded in truth, right? you can have a full affirmation of power at any cost because this power must be good, good, right? It must be beneficial. God wouldn't bring somebody to power if it wasn't somehow for the benefit of everybody. You weld that to an apocalyptic vision of, a, of an ultimate cataclysmic conflict between God and God's enemies. And I think you have a recipe for exactly the kind of authoritarianism that you find. You, you have somebody like Trump who is as Brad said, he, he's like, he's like the walking id of, <laughs> of like of that binary reduction of everything. Absolutely. Radical simple. Yeah. Simplification. Oh, for sure. But you have it. I, I, I just read today that Tony Perkins family research council guy has a new book coming out and the, apparently they changed the title, but the original title was render unto God and Trump. And it's this book that is slated to come out, and that's a, a reference to Matthew, the render unto God what's God's and to Caesar what's Caesar's. Uh, it's slated to come out right in front of the 2020 election and saying that evangelicals have a moral, theological, spiritual obligation to stand with Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of ways, he is like the embodiment of of all of these these kind of visceral feelings that, that I think are central to fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. It might be Ralph Reed. I'm not sure it's Tony Perkins. 
Oh, I think you're right. My apologies. Yeah. yeah. No, well, sorry. Sorry, Tony Perkins. I can't believe I have to say that. But <laughs> well, I mean, we, let's not leave. Let's not give him any benefit yeah. of the doubt. I mean, he's the guy who said that we should give give him a mulligan. Yeah. You know. This, this, yeah. This is this is why I like text in front of me, right? Because right. then I the wrong name, but yeah, no, no. thanks. But yeah, one, it's one of those figures. But that when I read that title, I was floored. Right? Like the, I don't know, just the crass. As you say, the sort of will to power. I mean, it's 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 just it's almost unbelievable if it yeah. wasn't all too believable. Yeah, and I I when I when I read things like that, I get the same sort of impulse as as you mentioned earlier, Dan, of like being driven back to okay, wait, this is hold on, you're using this this you're you say you're Christian, you like Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jewish rabbi. <laughs> And like he was, yep. he was resisting empire. Like throughout most of his ministry, and Jesus did have expectations of loyalty. But mm-hmm. when it comes to governmental power, like it's pretty clear that he wasn't a big fan. Yep. <laughs> and That's and right. the interesting thing I think as well too uh, is that the expectation of fealty to the government does not extend to any democratic candidate within evangelicalism. Yep. Um, you know, Jeff Sessions can say can quote Romans thirteen when he's trying to justify um, locking children in cages and other other terrible injustices. Um, yep. But for a Democrat to do that would be unthinkable for more than yeah. more than one reason. But yeah, yeah, yeah. In light of in light of how much just how much sort of power. Uh, white evangelicals have uh, influential white evangelicals have they feel it certainly feels over the last few years that they are at their political zenith um there are definitely a lot of organizations that have worked a long time quietly building influence uh and they are certainly striking while the iron is hot with during the, the trump administration for both of you how do you feel about the the way in which media covers and portrays these types of stories? Do you think that they are doing a serviceable job? Do you think that they are missing key aspects of motivations of this evangelical base or the leaders? Um, really, what are, what are your thoughts as far as, I mean, we're gearing in, we're about to go into high gear with the 2020 election as there is an active impeachment inquiry too. Um, so evangelical leaders are definitely not going to be backing off. Um, who was it? Robert Jeffress is already, uh, he's already intimating that there will be civil war if, if Trump is, um, is impeached. So clearly these, these folks have sway and they are, they are not going down without a fight. Um, so what is your, what is your take on, on how things are being covered in the, the broader media? right now i you know i think i think there's there's kind of uh two divergent directions and we're going to have to see what happens that for me the 2016 election was a moment when a large larger portion of the american populace woke up to the fact that giving the benefit of the doubt to white evangelicals was a bad idea that mm. their presentation of themselves as the true americans who are hardworking midwestern or southerners who, excuse me, are rural folks who 
you know, uh, own guns, pay their taxes and work hard. And they're just, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the real true folks. Uh, I think a lot of folks woke up to the idea that we need to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt and stop sort of uh, letting them craft their own image. Um, however, um, with all of that said, you know, it's clear to me that there are still many writers at important outlets who do just that, that, you know, in their sort of effort to um, get more coverage for the religion beat and to uh, preserve journalistic uh, balance, there's a kind of willingness, I think, to use kid gloves still. Um, you know, Blake, one of the reasons I was you know, so thankful for deconstructing my religion with you and Chrissy and um, and Liz Kinnicky and everyone else who was involved was to me that signaled one of the first times that I saw in a mainstream outlet a willingness to take a sharp and critical eye at the the toxic aspects of evangelical culture, mm. uh, sexually, mm. politically, et cetera. You know, to me that was a landmark moment that um, honestly I'm not sure we'd had before, right? And that's what I mean by divergent. I think in some ways we have folks uh, in academia, certainly in the in the journalistic uh, domain, um, for sure, that are waking up to the fact that we need more of that kind of incisive analysis. Um, on the other hand, it's hard to break through, uh, as you said, the century-long influence that has been built up by this group. I, I'll also say they are the best at crafting an image, mobilizing their people, and getting them to vote. Mm -hmm. They're not a growing, they're, they're at their zenith, but they're not a growing group. And yet it feels like, you know, one of the first episodes we did was what is an evangelical and why are they running my life? Because it feels like <laughs> right. they're running the country, even though they're a small aging, you know, portion. It's of, like a quarter of, this, of the population. And it feels like they're everywhere. And yeah. every time we do something, we have to ask for their permission, you know? So anyway, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, again, to just pick up on some of the same themes, I think one of the I, I think one overarching theme that the media is confronting with this is the same thing they've been confronting, as Brad says, since even before the election, which is this phenomenon that they have. And they talk about it. You hear this openly discussed by media outlets of the obligation to cover news that's happening. Right. And when certain people speak you have to cover it. And yet they have this dilemma, like when Trump stands up and says a bunch of stuff that isn't true and they're sort of caught in this dilemma of, well, do, I mean, do we not report on what the president of the United States is saying? Right. If it means right. that we're the echo chamber that like amplifies falsehoods and whatever. And I, I think the media, the broadly mainstream media has had to confront that question in a way that they probably haven't before. Um, I think evangelicalism is a piece of that. Right. So I, I think on one hand, you've had more kind of critical reflection on those kinds of things. I think in the same way that more and more media uh, outlets are beginning to say, yeah, we, we, we can't play that, right? We're, we're about reporting, but we are about reporting facts and things that are true. And, and so they're getting more critical. But I think you have all those other things that Brad is talking about. And I think another one is um, for years and years and years, you have had, and this is one of those things where the right has they've just been really media savvy and they've been much better at it for a lot longer than the political left has, of, of pitching this idea of the liberal media, right? And that the liberal mm -hmm. media, liberal media, liberal media, liberal media, liberal bias, liberal bias, and you know, and so you get this this almost knee-jerk reaction in media now to have to present two sides of things. 
even if there really kind of aren't two sides of things, right? If there's 99% of people think one thing, but like there's one outlier, they feel like they have to present it. And you get some of that, I think, in the kind of religion and culture kind of thing that you do have this group that is 20, I think it's like 23% of the population, according to Pew, or something like that. But every time something happens, even if you have like a mass population or scientific facts on your side, there's this need, need to to be, well, yeah, but we need to give equal voice to the alternative viewpoint. Even if the alternative viewpoint doesn't weigh as heavily, is not nearly as, influ you know, as influential or as widespread. And so it helps perpetuate that sense that this movement is speaking for more people than it is, uh, that it is more socially significant in terms of numbers than it is, that it is more representative of the US population as a whole than it is, because you're always going to have the talking head to represent the religious rights or the conservative evangelicals along with somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the media has a, and I, I my, my sympathies kind of go out to the media, right? It's easy to beat up on the media, but I have no idea how you, if, if you're a media outlet, how you navigate this right now, this, this notion of we need to report on what's happening and what people are saying. But when we know that they're saying things that are false, how do you not, perpetuate that. Um, but right. I think that all of that, I think all of that is tied together right now. I, I totally agree with your last, with your last statement in regards to it being very difficult to cover these things. And part of that I, I think is everyone's more sensitive to it because of the way in which social media is also criticized for the way it moves and influences, um, influences sentiment and all and seems to make us much more reactive than we may have been in the past. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm also curious about is what ways do you think the work that uh, religious studies and academia can really benefit uh, those sorts of media outlets when they're, when they're covering things? Cause one thing that I, when even just studying things, on my own for my master's degree and everything and moving from an evangelical school to uh, where a lot of things just weren't covered to a more liberal school where I just had access to, to more ideas and more books and, and that sort of thing. Um, I was sort of shocked to learn just how deep the literature is in regards to the study of evangelicalism, the criticism of evangelicalism from all sorts of different angles, whether it's gender or sexuality or politics or uh, some other intersectional sort of play on that. That's, that seems to just go back decades and, and be very, very deep. What can that sort of academic work do to really help the more general populace understand and develop a more nuanced uh, understanding of white evangelicalism and its polit political and social force in America right now. You know, for me, this this question came up because I, uh, you know, when the the 2016 election happened, I had just switched schools. I had gone from teaching in Memphis, Tennessee, to teaching in upstate New York. In Memphis, a lot of my students were either evangelical or they had been exposed to evangelicalism growing up. Uh, in upstate New York many of my students uh, were secular or they identified as Jewish. And what I realized when I got to New York is that for those students, 
the the evangelical, the conservative religious person uh, was like an exotic species. It was uh, it was someone that they'd never met. Uh, I actually started assigning um, visitation uh, trips where they had to go to an evangelical church and come back and write a report. And I actually turned into someone who I never expected to be, and that was trying to complexify and add layers to the character of the evangelical so that my students would get past um, this idea that they were just irrational, non-thinking, you know, completely biased, closed-minded, terrible human beings. Um, with that said, my goal is not to, as an academic or a scholar, to defend evangelicalism, but my goal is to say uh, what we need to do is become religious, religiously literate. We need to be able to understand um, white evangelicals in their humanity. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean agreeing. That does not mean agreeing to disagree. What that means is saying, um, like we've been saying all season, if we can get beyond belief to passion, to emotion, to affect, to vulnerability, to culture, then we can understand how people think themselves and live themselves into these positions, whether that's on abortion, whether that's on guns, whether it's on climate denial, whether that's on Trump. And so, you know, for me as a religious studies scholar who's an ex-evangelical, my goal is always to say religious literacy is not about a sort of like blithe compassion. And it's also not about studying exotic animals like their uh, people are sort of something to gawk at, right? What it's about is getting to a place where we're willing to engage and encounter um, religious traditions and, and, and communities like white evangelicals so that we can come to a better understanding of how to respond to them. Now, sometimes when we engage religions, we have a transformative and very positive encounter. Whether or not that means conversion is, is beyond the pale, but we might come across and say, wow, I learned something about my world and myself from them in a way I never expected. We also might have a, a sense of horror. We might have a sense of repugnance. And we might have a sense of, well, we can transform those feelings um, into action. Uh, we can transform those feelings into activism um, in ways that I think are much more informed and organized if we're willing the, to take the time to sort of investigate um, uh, those religious traditions um, in, in very complex ways. Now, for the ex-evangelical, I would say, um, if you want to study the literature that you're 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 referencing, Blake, um, it's important because what you come to understand when you study that literature is that you are not out of bounds for thinking that your experiences were really, really, really beyond the pale. That they, in many ways, might have been toxic or authoritarian or abusive or anything else. When you read that literature, it really helps your sense of perspective. Like you get a, a, a bird's eye view of, I really was in a very peculiar and a very sort of fringe movement in many ways that I'm trying to recover from, that I'm trying to sort of like rebalance myself now that I'm out of it. Um, for me, that literature is actually helpful for saying, oh, um, I'm going from a lived experience to an outsider's view. And it's actually helpful because um, I can I can sort of see myself in that movement from a detached perspective and get a better view of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think just to pick up on some of those, I think one of the aims we've had with the podcast and one of my favorite parts of it, right, has been the interviews that we've had with academics from you know different backgrounds, different approaches, different disciplines. Um, 
because one of the things that happens in academia, right, is, I mean, you, you really are, you're, you're working on really complex ideas and you develop specialized vocabularies for that. And you have the luxury of getting to spend time doing that and to talk to people about that, but it can become very insular, right? And I, I don't know very many academics who wouldn't like <laughs> the stuff that they spend their lives developing to be better known outside the academy. Um, and so I've really, it, it's just a, our small way, I think, of trying to get some of that really, really good work into more of the mainstream or into a, you know, to a broader popular audience. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the interviews that people have, I think, our own efforts to try to talk to, you know, an audience who aren't all trained academics, um, because I, I think you're right. There, there, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. And I, I confront this with my students all the time where I'll say something and they'll give me this look and I'm like, I, I'm not making this up. I can give you like a stack of, <laughs> right. of sources, right. That, you know, I, I can give you, it's like math homework. I, I can show my work. I can show you where I'm getting this and I can show you where the social scientists have done all this survey work. And they've shown that, you know, this isn't just a supposition, but that's really, it is, it's hard to get out there. Um, it's hard to get out because it isn't easy, right? It doesn't naturally lend itself to sound bites. It's often, it often adds complexity, right? We talked about the media and, and you know, one of the questions that sort of arises is, I, I think a, a media culpability in reducing things to either ors or to, to simple, you know, uh, either a both and or an either or, but really simple bite-sized pieces of information when I tell my students all the time, any question worth asking any problem worth addressing is worth asking or addressing because it's really complicated and it's really right. complex. Um, so I think anything that, that people like you and and hopefully Brad and I and the, the other the people that we've had on the podcast and, and other people who are doing these things, I think that's a really vital role of trying to form sort of a bridge between that kind of, of what can be kind of esoteric material and a kind of simplistic sort of popular conception, either pro-evangelical or anti-evangelical or, you know, whatever. And and that's part of what Brad and I wanted to do with the podcast is give a perspective that understands. We, I think we can present like, here's what it's like within that evangelical context. Here's what they're kind of thinking and feeling when these things happen. But in a way that can also be critical of that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I that. I, I really appreciate that about your show. I really appreciate that you both lend this personal lived experience as well as this, uh, as well as this well developed academic understanding of your subject matter. And I think it's great that that you're putting it out, putting it out there in an accessible format. As a uh, obviously, I'm a fan of podcasts. We're talking on one right now, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I think it's a I think it's the best medium with which to really try to tackle and contextualize these complicated sorts of things. Um, and so I, I really think what you're doing with straight white American Jesus is very laudable. And I, I think it's great how you're selecting these scholars with, with very well-developed expertise, but that their work has, I think just a, a enhanced social relevance and this sort of moment in history um, because of the things that we've been talking about, the, the, just the, the, the amount of power that, that this group, that we all have been a part of and now spend our time still thinking about, even though we're doing it from the other side, um, that 
that means something. And I think what you're what you're doing on the show is is really really great in in servicing that those topics and that content. So I wanted to make sure I I, I said that and just and encourage you both to to keep doing it because it's it's great. And I'm glad that there are scholars out there putting their their work out in a such a accessible way. We appreciate I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to add, and this is just for all those um, evangelicals out there that um, yeah. in ways that would horrify our elders, uh, Dan and I uh, got together in Northampton, Mass., where uh, close to where he lives, and uh, we took a walk on a sort of rainy spring day, and we were talking about doing this thing, and we went to uh, Jonathan Edwards Church, which is now the church that Dan um, attends, and it's a very welcoming and affirming church, a huge um, rainbow flag uh, greets you as you sort of walk up to it. Um, we then hatched the details for the, the podcast at a predominantly lesbian bar um, in Amherst, Mass. And so um, the origin story of the podcast is as horrifying to our evangelical uh, uh, <laughs> others as uh, one might imagine. So. As, it, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> so kudos to you on that. Yeah. If well, we could have just worked some some more dancing in there. I think I yeah, think I would yeah. scandalize the Baptists more. Yeah. You know, sort of. <laughs> I'm sure somebody was dancing in the bar, right? Just well, maybe not. Maybe yeah, not the dancing, dancing leads to podcasting, is what I learned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. I wonder if I wonder if my alma mater, Indiana Wesleyan, has any rules against podcasting now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> well, um, I, I want to thank you both for for coming on the show and talking to me a little, just a little bit about both your stories as well as, um, as well as your work on on your show. Where can people find either of you online, uh, as well as where can they find your podcast together? So uh, we are. Uh, straight white American Jesus is where, you know, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us stitcher, Apple podcast, um, Google. Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Bradley Onishi. We have our straight white American Jesus Facebook page and, uh, you can email both of us. What am I missing, Dan? Um, ex- nothing except the fact that I'm not on Twitter. Cause I just don't know if my mental health can handle it. <laughs> so I've sort of been yeah, just don't. Um, it's but, okay. but if people want to find me, I mean, I'm, I'm, if you just Google, Daniel Miller Landmark College. That's where I'm at. Um, I'll pop up, and my email and contact information is there. And I I love to hear from people. And I'm I'm with Brad. We we you know check and follow the uh, the Facebook uh, page and the posts and different things like that. So so people can find us if they want to, and we'd love to hear from them. Great, Brad, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Blake. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.